This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everyone. I'm Father Gravy, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about grasshoppers, Africa, and how the Catholic Church includes the whole world. Do you like grasshoppers? It wasn't a question I was expecting. I answered tentatively, sure, I guess. Then my questioner smiled and passed me a spoon and a large bowl of freshly fried grasshoppers. And as they say, when in Rome. Only, I wasn't in Rome. I was in the south of Uganda, a region sandwiched between Lake Victoria to the east and Tanzania to the south. It's right on the equator and lush with sub-Saharan vegetation. I had just finished my first year of seminary, and I was staying for a month as the guest of the local bishop. Uganda is sometimes referred to as the Pearl of Africa. It was here that Catholicism first arrived in the sub-Sahara, like the infant church that it is, just over a century old. Catholicism here exudes a joy, an energy, an innocence, a growth, and a vulnerability that I found entirely irresistible. My time there was a remarkable adventure. The bishop arranged for me to have a complete tour of the diocese. I visited hospitals and schools, orphanages and seminaries, slums and bush villages. We would drive all over, once having to stop for a monkey hanging from a branch in front of us. He and I stared at each other, each wondering who was the more exotic. I'm pretty sure I was. The topic of race is, of course, incredibly fraught in America. But it wasn't there. I remember the bishop and his household being fascinated by the tan line for my wristwatch. They thought it quite a marvel that my skin could change color. In some of the remote regions, little children would see me and hide behind their parents, crying. I don't usually have that effect on people. And it was explained to me that these children, who don't have television or the internet, had never seen a white person before. I must have seemed like a ghost to them. And after a few weeks, I began to see myself through their eyes. Not as white, but as not black. One day was particularly memorable. We drove out to a remote region, on dirt roads through banana groves, to a parish church for the ordination of a priest. People had walked for miles to attend. The town shut down for the day. Homemade streamers lined the trees in humble greeting, and children ran along the car cheering their bishop's arrival. As we walked towards the church, I was moved by the sight of old men, dressed in their finest, kneeling to kiss their bishop's ring. The bishop returned this affection with such warmth and love. I saw a shepherd and his flock. The mass was very long and very joyous. A large choir played native drums under the direction of a religious sister. 
At the offertory, when a collection is taken, and people sometimes bring up the bread and wine that will be used at Mass, a group of schoolchildren, smartly dressed in their tribal robes, also brought up fruits and grains, and a goat. Much later that day, we drove back to the bishop's house, with the goat sitting next to me, bleating in my ear. Not bleeding, bleating, like, bah, the whole way. I asked the bishop what he planned to do with this goat. He smiled and said, we're having it for dinner. And we did. When the mass ended, everyone made their way to the nearby field where lunch was served. The women of the village had spent days preparing and cooking this meal, and there was more than enough for everyone. One of the most enduring impressions of my time there is the immense joy I found everywhere. It surprised me at first. After all, these people are living in the midst of incredible poverty and daily hardship, and most likely will be for the rest of their lives. I think their faith really makes the difference. Not because it gives them some escapist fantasy about a better world in the afterlife, but because it gives meaning and value to their world in this life. They know God is real and that He loves them, and that with faith and family, they are very rich indeed. That makes their laughter easy and their song infectious. They treated me like an honored guest, and their eagerness to please was so humbling. It reminded me of how the early Christians referred to each other as saints or holy ones. I felt that same collective holiness. I was a better person simply living among them, and they embraced me as if I were a member of their own family. But after all, that's exactly what I was. Allow me to explain, and to go a little deeper here. At Mass, we recite what's called the Nicene Creed. It's a statement of belief that all Christians share, and it was written mostly at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. The age of persecution was coming to a close. Christianity had spread and gained mainstream acceptance, and the Emperor Constantine had just legalized the religion 12 years earlier. But there were many debates about what Christians believe. In many places, the Church was divided over basic questions, like who Jesus is and where he came from. Constantine realized that only Christianity could keep this enormous and diverse empire together, and these differences threatened that unity. So he called together all the bishops of the world to have a council, a formal meeting, in the city of Nicaea, near modern-day Istanbul. The bishops worked out a creed, a formal statement of belief, to have everyone on the same page we're still reciting that same creed 1,700 years later. The creed itself is a bit lengthy and contains a lot in it, but there's one line towards the end that says, I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. One holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Those are called the four marks of the church, four key traits. I'm just going to focus on the third one, Catholic, because it's what this episode is about. It's spelled with a lowercase c. We don't mean Catholic in the denominational sense, as opposed to Orthodox Christians or Protestants. 
We mean Catholic in its original Greek sense, meaning universal. The Church isn't limited to one region or culture or nation. It's meant for everyone, to encompass the whole world. Jesus' last words to his followers were, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And they did. Christianity began with the Jewish people, who kept their faith in the one God and prepared the world for the coming of the Messiah. But the apostles knew that when he came, he came for everyone. And so from that upper room in Jerusalem, where they had all gathered after the ascension, they went out to the ends of the earth to bring everyone into the family fold. That's why the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples begins, Our Father. We who have been baptized are really brothers and sisters in Christ, really sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. You may be familiar with the phrase, blood is thicker than water. That's often understood to mean that the bonds of family are the strongest and take precedence over all others. But that's not actually what it means at all. The origin of that phrase means that the blood of Christ is thicker than the water of the womb. That is, our true family is a spiritual one, and we are closest to our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who hold true to the faith of our fathers. This family language isn't just a metaphor or a sentimental cliché. It expresses something fundamental about our faith. You might remember the blockbuster movie Avatar that came out about a decade ago. I'm not really a science fiction or fantasy movie type, but there was one scene that struck me. One of the visitors to the planet Pandora is injured, and the natives all gather around this life-giving tree. Their long braids are basically plugged into the roots of the tree, and they light up with an energy that flows from and through each of them in order to heal this outsider. Now, every analogy limps, and this one may be more than most. I don't want to extend it too far, because there are plenty of areas, such as a sort of eco-pantheism, that would take us off the rails. But what struck me when I was watching it was the way it visually captured this sense of connectedness. Those who are baptized and who are free from serious sin are plugged into God. We have His energy, what we call grace, running through us. It's like we're all lit up from the same power source. To tweak the metaphor a bit, St. Paul compares it to a body. Each of us has a part to play in making up the whole church. Just like a body has an eye and an ear and toes and elbows. But it's the same blood, the blood of Christ, that courses through the body, gives it life, and connects us to each other. That's not just a spiritual truth. It's also a lived reality. For myself, I've had the experience many times of being in a totally foreign culture, Uganda being Exhibit A here. And despite all the differences in language and customs and food and everything else, there's an immediate familiarity because we have the most important thing in common. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And really, that's all that matters. Everything else is either a decoration 
or a distraction. I've been amazed at how quickly and easily those friendships form, and how we can feel closer to these seeming strangers than with members of our own family who don't share that same essential foundation. This union forms the foundation in building the kingdom of God, the reign of Christ. Terms like kingdom and reign are tricky because we immediately associate them with power and dominance. But that's a worldly emphasis. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. I mentioned earlier that in the first centuries, Christians referred to each other as holy ones. That holiness showed itself in the love that is, or ought to be, the defining hallmark of Christians. It stood out in the cold and cruel pagan world into which Christianity came and spread. Many outside observers were puzzled by the charity and solicitude that Christians showed, especially to the poor, the weak, the sick, all those whom society cast aside. One Roman official even sneered, see how these Christians love each other. That love, seeing every human being as a brother and sister, it transformed the world. That love built, invented really, orphanages and hospitals, schools and nursing homes, shelters and soup kitchens. The fact that nowadays we don't spit upon or despise the poor and the weak owes itself to what are really the vestiges of a Christian culture, a Christian ethos of love in a largely post-Christian world. We sometimes hear that love is the universal language, meaning that it transcends all other barriers. Unfortunately, that's often understood in an emotional or romantic way. That's not what we're talking about here. We're also not talking about tolerance, sometimes held up as the overriding virtue of our time. Jesus calls us to something higher. He doesn't tell us to tolerate one another, just biting our tongue and putting up with people we might not like very much. No, he calls us to love one another, in the true sense of putting the good of another person before our own needs and wants, expecting nothing in return. And we can't have that, not fully, without God, because He is love. He created us out of love and died for us out of love. He didn't have to, and we didn't earn it. That's just the way love works. And it's why, at the end of the day, it's only the love of Jesus that can really unite us, that can be our common language. Nothing illustrates this more than the saints. Each saint has a feast day, a day assigned to him or her when we offer prayers and celebrate Mass in honor of that particular saint. And I love the amazing diversity among them. In any given week, you might find a first-century apostle, a medieval king, a 20th-century mom. Or it could be a beggar from Canada, a teenager from Italy, a priest from Hawaii, a young boy from Japan. The one thing that unites them all is their common faith in and love for God. They all make up the mystical body of Christ, with that same energy source, the grace of God, flowing through them. I had more in common with those seeming strangers in Uganda than I do with many people right here in New York, even though on paper it looks like just the opposite. It reminds me of a restaurant my family used to go to when I was a child. They had a sign on the wall, 
There are no strangers here, just friends you haven't met. It's probably a pretty common slogan and might sound a little cheesy. But when we really live our faith, it's absolutely true. I think a big part of the joy of heaven will be finally meeting these friends. Sure, our Blessed Mother and the saints to whom we have a particular devotion, but also our ancestors whom we knew nothing about, but who perhaps made great sacrifices so that the faith could be passed down to us and who have been praying for us all the while. We'll be amazed at just how many friends we have and at just how large our family is. Let me conclude here with two takeaways about this church that we call Catholic. We live in an age of increasing isolation. We do more and more things remotely or virtually. There's less opportunity for people to come together. And we see the skyrocketing rates of loneliness and depression. We need to remember and to believe that the Catholic is never alone. He is always plugged into that family tree with countless saints and angels praying for him, loving him, and cheering him on. The smallest parish in the most remote area is still mystically joined to all Catholics around the world and through the centuries. Secondly, and lastly, we live in an age of increasing division. There's so much nowadays that seems to divide us and tear us apart. We're tempted to look at others with suspicion, even hostility, as we draw the lines of battle. But believing, practicing Catholics can never really be divided because we remain united at the most fundamental level. All other differences just add to the spice of life, giving it flavor and sweetness. This Catholic mark of the church can be challenging to keep in mind and to live out. I had a small taste of it in Uganda, when someone as exotic as a monkey hanging from a tree was made to feel right at home in the warmth of a family's love. And there are other times when that mark becomes even more visible on a grander scale. Go to St. Peter's Square in Rome for a papal mass. It's packed with hundreds of thousands of people waving flags and carrying banners from what looks like every nation on earth. Moments like that are a foretaste of heaven when we're all gathered together at last. The colonnade that encircles St. Peter's Square drives home the point. It's designed to look like two arms extending out from the basilica to embrace the whole world and welcome them home. That's exactly what God does through his church. He welcomes home all his prodigal children, those who are lost or sick, abandoned or neglected, wounded and broken, he throws out his arms and says, come and rejoice. The party's just getting started. That party is the eternal wedding feast of heaven. I don't know if grasshoppers will be on the menu, but I sure look forward to meeting everyone there. <laughs>